Hello, and welcome to a new season of Media Literate. Wow, uh, I think the Zoom audio cut off your woo because they were like, that's a siren. Ooh. That's good. Keep it in that frequency. Welcome back. Uh, you should be hearing this. If you're on the East Coast, which uh, I left so celebratorily, I was so good. You're in the middle of the worst month of the year right now. February, bitches. <laughs> it sucks. But you know what doesn't suck? Actually, most movies suck. I was going to say movies, but ugh. I don't think there's I a like lot of stinkers out there. Yeah. <laughs> Go to grad school, kids. Learn to hate what you love. Um, yeah. So welcome back. We're really excited to bring you this episode. And I think we're going to make a habit out of um, recording the intro after the fact, because mm-hmm. woof, after a month of, of like, I had COVID. Do you have COVID yet? Maybe. Who's to say? Uh, We came back to recording and we are awkward friends, but we're still cute uh, for this audio medium. Mm -hmm. And we're joined by um, a really great friend of ours from the PhD program, our second prestigious PhD, Jacqueline Johnson, who specializes in the romance genre for this, the most romantic slash worst month of the year, (laughs) except for Black History Month. We love that part. It's such a bummer that it's in the worst month. Um, And so she's going to talk about a little bit of love, a little bit of marriage, a little bit of babies in baby carriages. Yeah. Because actually, yeah. Yeah. No, literally we're talking about Bridgerton. Um, But you know that we can't. Wait, I'm sorry. I need to interrupt this because there is a fly in my room that I deadass just caught with my bare hands. <laughs> I am the apex predator. Okay. Hell yeah. Proud of you, B. Um, watch out, listeners. Don't piss off Laura. She'll catch you midair. <laughs> We're talking about Bridgerton today. Um, light, light content warning. Bridgerton is a show that, uh, has, you know, this is a part of the discourse around that show that the like central plot point uh, also involves content warning sexual assault so that the show doesn't really choose to portray in that way and we talk about the problems we talk about the sexiness uh I think you were saying something earlier Laura that like the truth of grad school is what like learning to love the things that what is it you know just learning that the things that you like are problematic in so many ways and trying to figure out how to watch them uh you know, Watch them anyway. still, we're recording this in the week of that Joss Whedon profile that came out on Vulture. <laughs> That's just, you know, so it's. But know. Joss cannot take Buffy from us. Yeah, I refuse. <laughs> and speaking of, I, I, I'm trying to make this a transition. Is it going to work? Probably not. Mm. Um, this Joss Whedon, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I would say television canon. That's a verbal uh, segue to Cannon Fodder, the first one of the year. Happy 2022. That was, what is the, uh, I'm just disappointed in the efficacy of that segue. I guess it did work. So uh, that's fair. You want to do Cannon Fodder? <laughs> I this guess. is the energy we're bringing into 2022. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Cannon Fodder. So um, on the theme of love, I watched a film in the uh, new queer cinema canon. That's the the movement of queer film from the 90s, I think. This is cool. uh, My Own Private Idaho, 1991, Gus Van Sant. It's a strange movie and I still (laughs) haven't wrapped my head around it. I think I need to watch it again. It's a very good movie for me in that it's part of it is Shakespeare fan fiction, which as I mentioned earlier, later in this episode, earlier in my personal timeline, is something that I like. Um, So My Own Private Idaho uh, is sort of a mishmash of different movies. It feels like that because I believe Gus Van Sant had like three different ideas for movies that he combined into one. On the one hand, it is a modern day queer retelling of the Henry IV plays, which uh, are about uh, largely Prince Hal's coming of age as he uh, is preparing to take over the crown from his father, but he seems to prefer hanging out with like the street riffraff uh, in this like modern day retelling. It's- uh, Is this the Timothy Chalamet British King? 
from the <laughs> no, Netflix he wasn't like born yet. King? Oh, which what? which king is this? How oh, sorry, I thought was Timothy Chalamet in 1991 wasn't born yet. Okay, yes, it is that enough. king. I think it's that king. Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen that one. But he's the one who liked to hang out with Riff Raff. Yes, he likes to hang out with Riff Raff. There's a bit where he's like, I know it looks like I'm just hanging out with Riff Raff, but actually, I'm just making it look like I'm hanging out with Riff Raff so that when I take over for my father, people are that much more impressed. He's like intentionally setting the bar very low so that when he turns out to be competent, he uh, people are more impressed than they should be, which is a great plan. I have to respect Yeah, taking it. notes. Um, um, uh, so on the other hand, it is the story, it is a story told largely from the perspective of one of the Hal character's best friends. Um, Falstaff. No, uh, this is, uh, well, Falstaff is the father figure to kind of all the street riffraff who in this story are sort of, are, are all like male prostitutes who are young men. Um, it's, it's dark. So uh, pr the Prince Hal character is just kind of doing it for fun, which like, yikes. Um, but uh, I mean, not yikes to having sex, sex great, but yikes to, you know, slumming uh, just for funsies uh yeah, so they love it when rich people try try out poor people stuff yeah so that's that's the whole thing but so um the main main character is portrayed by river phoenix is uh so it's sort of about his own kind of dealing with figuring out his own queer love and for the hal character um dealing with his the traumas of his past he kind of they go on kind of a motorcycle trip to idaho that's that's what the titular idaho is um, and you know, River Phoenix is one of those actors where it's like, you watch this movie and you're like, it is like, it's a tragedy that he died. And it's, it's very much a tragedy that like this amazing, amazing actor was taken from us so young because like, he is able to do things in this movie and like that, that people afterwards who are trying to emulate him, like Leonardo DiCaprio are just fundamentally unable to do. He is just so compelling and brilliant as an actor. And it's just, it's so mesmerizing to watch him, which is kind of a shame because then the person he has to do the most acting across from is Keanu Reeves, who just can't fucking act. Like, I'm sorry, I know we love him. I love John Wick, I love The Matrix, but he cannot act and they put him, for some reason the 90s was like, yes, Keanu Reeves, Shakespeare actor. Like, oh. it doesn't work. <laughs> he, he, so they, I guess I should say like a lot of the language around the Hal scenes are in like sort of Shakespeare language. They're not mm -hmm. actual Shakespeare, but they're like Shakespeare sounding language. So it's kind of, like, and like River Phoenix can handle that because he's one of the best actors of his generation. And Keanu Reeves just can't, he can't do, it's so, so awkward. Like there's this beautiful, beautiful scene where uh, I guess spoilers, River Phoenix's character is confessing his love to Keanu Reeves's character. And it's really, really like heart-wrenching because it cuts back to Keanu Reeves and he's just like, you know, like, I got nothing, babe. River Phoenix, it's a, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's very queer, but he gets no smoochies in this. It's very sad. Um, mm -hmm. It's, so it's, that's just, uh, it's, it feels very disjointed in that way. Um, I think that mm -hmm. people have argued that it works, that that disjointedness between like the, the Shakespeare-ish dialogue and the non-Shakespeare dialogue kind mm -hmm. of works in this kind of avant-garde way. And you could maybe argue that that dis disjuncture also fits with like the, performances of the two male leads mm -hmm. but like it's just so like painful to watch this truly like genius talent across from somebody who's trying his best oh he's putting in the hours he's very cute <laughs> he's just adorable but he can't act and uh -huh. that is frustrating um so yeah uh my own private idaho I would recommend it. I think that it's, okay. it's, it's like genuinely good. And it's, again, it's amazing to see just somebody who's really good at acting really show what good acting is. Um, uh -huh. And it is heartbreaking and I love Shakespeare fanfic. Uh, so, you know, that's fun. Um, and it kind of 
that sort of idea of like the slumming thing that is at the heart of the Henry the Fourth plays is uh-huh. kind of more interrogated in this story than it is in the original play because obviously like Shakespeare didn't care about poor people really uh so uh that plot is kind of given more weight uh in a way that I like so uh-huh. it does feel disjointed it feels kind of messy but like maybe that works I need to rewatch it again but I it costs four dollars on Amazon to rent and you know I just it's you gotta no more for Jeff again no more yeah. for Jeff yeah maybe I'll get it on DVD <laughs> oh man well if you don't like Jeff Bezos have you considered whoever the fuck the CEO of Netflix is <laughs> wow so that's a segue come... <laughs> thanks I felt good about it okay so when we come back we will be joined by Jacqueline Johnson a queen among fucking dirty ass sheep um <laughs> That is how I feel whenever I hang out with her. I'm just like, oh, my sure. goodness. Uh, and also, I'm really happy about this episode. We get to do a little bit more background on what our guests' um, whole academic research situation is. Mm-hmm. And if that sounds boring for you, remember that Jackie's whole academic research situation is the romance genre yeah. across mediums or media. Ooh. And yeah, 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 yeah. Media literate, even. Um She's such a badass. She's so interesting. um, And I'm so happy that she joined us. So give it a listen. It's exciting. Plus, we do talk about um, ejaculate. (laughs) All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Media Literate. Uh, This is a really weird welcome back because in actuality, it's our first welcome back Mm -hmm. since the last time Laura and I recorded uh, just tipsy with some eggnog (laughs) and a blanket fort. And it is early. Uh, Yeah, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's early in the morning. I have class later today. We're not doing great. Yeah. We're not in a classless society yet, sadly. Uh, Marx hey. would be so disappointed. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. No, well, this is definitely like our our hardcore like holiday hangover episode, but that also means that it is like uh, just coming up on Valentine's Day episode. And Ooh. so we're really, really excited to be joined by Jackie Johnson. Um, <gasps> I don't know if that sound effect came through. I was trying to do like an applause sound. Did it work? A bit. Thank you. Jackie, introduce yourself. Hello, listeners. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. (laughs) Jackie, actually, uh, you listened to our podcast most out of all podcasts uh, last year on your Spotify rap. Is that correct? Spotify has told me. Hey. But hello, everyone. Um, I'm Jackie. I'm a third year PhD candidate in cinema and media studies. Uh, I met Kim and Laura during the pandemic, so I don't know when that was. Um, but I'm as a whirlpool. <laughs> yep. Excited to be here. Um, and really broadly speaking, uh, I kind of think about digital platforms, race, television, um, but specifically, and why I'm so excited to be here for the Valentine's Day episode is um, I take a cultural production kind of lens to look at the romance uh, genre. And so what I mean by that is that um, I look at a few different types of media industries. So I look at the television industry, I look at publishing, and I look at podcasting. And I think hey. about romance, <laughs> right? And I so think exciting. about romance uh, kind of in two different lenses. So actually like romance is the central kind of function of the narratives I study. But also I think about the way that work in creative fields gets romanticized um, mm. and how that is a specific experience for Black women. Okay, so like the first time you uh, explained what your, your like research focus is, I think it was on Zoom and I've literally just been obsessed with you since the first time you like popped up in a Zoom box. I don't know what our first connection was. I think you might have direct messaged me to tell me that I was uh, not muted. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. 
yeah, it was like that. And then we just like, I was like, you look, you seem really cool. And, and I really like you, um, but this is weird. So bye. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I threw several compliments your way and it was awesome. Um, but I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I do that in every meeting. Like there was um, the job talk like a few days ago. I was like, mm-hmm. Karina, girl, girl, Mike hot, Mike hot. <laughs> <Turn it laughs> Yes, it is. I want to normalize doing that on Zoom. Like of the all the like in 2022, normalize XYZ. It's just like just telling people to mute themselves, just like as blatantly <laughs> as possible. Uh that's that's the one thing we gotta do. Um so I didn't realize though that your like the romance genre or like the romance studies that you do span such like a wide range of of romance in media could you talk a little bit about um I know we need to get into this but I'm now just like having a conversation with you because I'm curious uh could you talk a little bit about like the romanticization of what were you saying say more yeah absolutely so um this is actually the semester where I have to like do my proposal and JD or DGS sent us an email that was like, you must finish this by the end of the semester. You must sign all this paperwork. And I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I promise. (laughs) I'm in a position right now where I really have to like get more specific about kind of the questions that I'm asking. So this is like Mm -hmm. perfect timing for you to ask me that. Um, (laughs) Yay. What I mean by that is that, so I'm thinking about um, really romance kind of post 2010. And so Mm -hmm. why that timing is specific is because I really feel like it's the time when the kind of platforms as media kind of creators and production companies um, really is in the era where it's like a bit more kind of normalized for us all. So I'm looking at things like Netflix and Hulu's foray into original content production Mm -hmm. as opposed to just like streaming licensed kind of material. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Amazon kind of solidifying its place as um, where kind of people that want to self-publish novels kind of go and like the Mm -hmm. Amazon hegemony of like. (laughs) um, I'm you Bezos. (laughs) Or is it thank you Bezos? Do we like him for the romance publishing? No, okay, I'm just checking. (laughs) (laughs) The devil really. And then I'm also thinking about like podcasts have been around uh, for some time, but um, I think that kind of post 2010 is when you start to get like podcast companies and when Mm. podcasts become um, such a more regular part of people's kind of like media diet. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about how platforms get romanticized as Uh a place for people of color especially to like be able to tell their stories away from the kind of legacy media industries mm-hmm. um though I mean as we'll get into later on um I can go all day about like Netflix's relationship to like race um but so well, I, I think- hope you will that's the, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole thing so I'm thinking about that kind of romanticization and I'm thinking about how like work in creative industries has always been kind of precarious, but um, Mm -hmm. even though we like to think of people like Amazon and Netflix, like kind of creating space and like making um, new kind of areas for people to create content in, they uh, make these jobs even more precarious. Mm -hmm. And so I like build off of like literary theorist, Sarah Brulette, who says like um, that the love discount in these types of like creative jobs is actually even Mm -hmm. more enhanced for people who do work in the romance genre. So when you say love discount, what do you mean? Basically that your passion and your like love for what you're doing is Uh supposed to make up for some of the actual lack of material benefits, like real wages. Like money. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, I was reading, I'm sure you've read it, Open TV by Amar Jean Christian, where he uh, talks about like the kind of era of 2000s, like early internet production, where Mm. it's kind of like this sort of like open, like uh, unplanned landscape where it's like we have this opportunity to like make whatever we want and uh they like trials and tribulations but also freedoms of that and then 
of course, like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon come in and it's like, no, this is, this is ours now. Mm -hmm. The internet belongs to us. Yeah. And Christian does a lot of work, like looking at YouTube. And so the time Mm -hmm. he's looking at YouTube and the shows that start on YouTube, like Broad City, like The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, Mm -hmm. um, that was a time where, I mean, Google had bought YouTube, but YouTube increasingly has come to kind of model itself off of almost kind of like a network kind of broadcast like model. So like, I mean, I love watching um, Hot Ones. It's like my favorite Mm -hmm. thing. And so like now there's like, if you watch a bunch, it'll like on the side, it's like you have the episodes kind of like decked in order. They put put in commercials, like Mm -hmm. that intercut kind of, they segment kind of, they mess up the flow, I guess, if you will. (laughs) They segment (laughs) um, the kind of narrative in particular ways. So increasingly YouTube is no longer this kind of like free space. Mm -hmm. It's trying to model itself after the like legacy kind of tradition. Dang. I mean, I think this is actually a great moment to talk about the way that these supposedly disruptive, you know, um, changing the game platforms like Hulu and Netflix and YouTube are actually reproducing a lot of the very same issues that we see in network TV. Um, And one of those things, I think we could definitely talk about the way that the, the like network institution that is Shondaland gets reproduced and in some ways recast and in some ways reaffirmed on Netflix through Bridgerton, which is what we're here to talk about today. Woohoo! Yay! Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, Bridgerton as a show does what Shonda, Shonda Rhimes, this is, we should clarify, if you live under a rock and or have never <laughs> seen the American broadcast channel... <laughs> ABC, she owns it. Um, Shonda Rhimes obviously uh, is the the creator behind Grey's Anatomy, which is still going. Jack, oh, yeah. do you know? They just announced the another season coming next year. They're doing another one. Jesus it's been Christ. I looked it up the other day. Grey's Anatomy has been on since I was in seventh grade. Ah. <laughs> I still can't make it past season four. Like as soon as Dr. Burke left, I was just like, well, what are we here for really? And, and then that was it. Um, but so she's behind that. She also did Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, probably even more shows that I can't Bill think Star-Crossed, of. Bill Starcrossed, anybody? Was I oh, the I was gonna, oh, Laura, <laughs> I'm bringing it up. Still Starcrossed as part of the episode. I'm ready. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Oh my God, I can't wait to learn what the hell you're talking about. It's going to be great. (laughs) So Shonda Rhimes, actually, uh, this is a weird version of the quote unquote love discount because she's like one of the most powerful creators on television um, easily, I think you could say. Right, Jackie? Yeah, her and Ryan Murphy, I feel like. Oh, yeah. The king and queen of like show running. Oh my God. Now I'm just picturing them as like the king and queen from Bridgerton where Ryan Murphy is just sort of like running around with his head caught off just to be like, what if we did this? And Sean is like, all right, let's figure this out. <laughs> but um, so Shonda Rhimes had this moment of like disrespect. I think we could say like, it's so weird because she has so much money. She is just like in control on like almost every level. And because ABC is owned by Disney, mm-hmm. uh, she's supposed to have this like Disney pass and she was supposed to go with her, uh, I wanna say like sister and nieces and nephews or some like children involved in her life. I don't know her life um, to Disneyland, but she had a scheduling conflict and was like, okay, well you guys go and use my pass because I'm Shonda motherfucking rhymes, right? And then Disney was like, no you can't they can't get in with your past and she was just like literally why and I I assume there is much more going on behind the scenes and like this is the straw that broke the camel's back but it is really interesting to think of her being like okay you don't want to give me what I want well bye I'm gonna go get paid millions of dollars by Netflix like she signed an absurd deal with them Mm -hmm. and And Bridgerton oh go ahead 
Yeah, and they just actually uh, a few months ago added something to the deal or they extended it. Um, I don't have the deadline article in front of me, but they've added more money and she's going to do like a few more projects. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm both excited and based on how Bridgerton went and how I feel about like several of her shows. (laughs) I love the first few seasons of almost all of her shows. Um, In my head, this means still star-crossed is coming back. (laughs) (laughs) But Which yeah, is, so sh- sorry. No, please talk about still star-crossed. It's I, Romeo I need to be and Juliet fan fiction. Yes. Uh, that's that's basically that's all I have to say about it. And it's just- I mean, Laura and I, famously the only two people who watched <laughs> that show. <laughs> it never. That's they actually never- how they met. Yeah. <laughs> In the at the convention, it was just us. <laughs> just like they never even finished the first season. Like oh <laughs> yep yep anyway, sorry Shonda. i don't want to keep derailing this conversation <laughs> <laughs> so bridgerton is the first of these shows um and why don't you just introduce us to to the concept of bridgerton jackie if you don't uh, mind all right so i'm gonna go back and start with uh julia quinn so julia quinn wrote all of the original bridgerton novels the first one the duke and i was published in the year 2000 uh but it's set in the regency era um, so it's the first book starts in 1813. And so the okay. Bridgerton novels follow the eight Bridgerton siblings. Um, they're all, this is so corny, but they're all named in alphabetical order. So let me see oh, if that's I can... goddamn <laughs> annoying, but okay. <laughs> in front of me. Okay, so we have Antony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, Eloise, Francesca, Gregory, and Hyacinth. They never have to finish the alphabet. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> All 26 Bridgerton children. <laughs> How many letters are there in the alphabet? Is it 24? No, that was it. <laughs> oh, thank God. This is <laughs> Xavier. <laughs> this is Zendaya, the uh, 26th Bridgerton child. That's why she's so, she's just born under a good star, I guess. The, the books are mostly in child order, except really the first and the last two. So the first book starts with the eldest daughter, that's Daphne. So we start mm-hmm. with the fourth kind of sibling. And mm-hmm. so Daphne falls in love with Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings. Um, so Who is hot? He's a rake. <laughs> a rake. <sighs> He's a rake. So, I mean, the books, I think... Um, I mean, in any kind of romance novel, the central kind of narrative is about these two people's emotional journey and their kind of like romantic arc. And they all, you know, of course, in genre romance end with like happily ever after for the couple. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing about The Duke and I is that that is like really just about, there's no like, it doesn't really feel sometimes like there's much of a side plot in The Mm. Duke and I. So actually in the show, when you watch it after reading the book, you're like, Oh, they're just adding. We're just like <laughs> adding so many things, so many new people. Um, and in some of the subsequent books in Quinn's series, like there's more to it. Like book uh, seven, which is one of my favorite, which is Hyacinth. They switch Hyacinth and Gregory. But that mm-hmm. book, there's like almost like a, a what, what's the word I'm looking Like a heist. There's a heist in the book. <laughs> things get... <laughs> Things get more interesting, but the first one is very much like, okay, these two people, okay, they like, they start, it's a fake dating, which is like a quintessential kind of romance trope. Wonderful, Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a, the Duke and I, I gotta say, the first book and the last book of Quinn series, I think are my least favorite. Things get spicier Mm. in the middle. That's really funny that you say it gets more interesting when they add side characters because I'm always skipping. I'm like, when are they gonna fuck? Mm -hmm. Let's go. Like, I need them to like, I need his hand to brush her hand. I need uh, the hairs to raise on their arms and subsequently mine. Um, <laughs> let's go. Like that's side plots. I'm not here for that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember it's interesting with Bridgerton because like I remember I was watching it at my friend's house and I think we watched the first five episodes and then I went home and I was like, I don't keep watching this. And then it was just the episode with all of the fucking and mm. it was like yeah. like I'm glad that like I didn't watch it like in a public space because there's something that's like I mean it's interesting with like romance on television because mm-hmm. 
romance novels are such a personal thing, right? Like you're sitting there and you're reading it to yourself. And like, I mean, you could read it out loud. It might be strange. And, and so, I don't know, to have that kind of like television, like community element where you, you could theoretically sit and watch this with somebody else is interesting, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To me, actually, the craziest thing about the sex montage in that episode is that, do you guys know what song they're playing on strings? Oh, uh, it's Wildest Dreams by Taylor Swift. And once I figured out what song I was listening to, I lost it. Like, oh, God. <laughs> Wait, which song is it? Say again. It's Wildest Dreams by Taylor Swift. Oh, A that's really funny song. because I don't know that song. <laughs> well, it's the one with the music video that people were like, Come, like talking about how the music video was really like colonialist oh yes it's like yeah. Africa her little playground yeah oh, oh my god oh dear uh well okay so this is another great transition because <laughs> there's a little something different about the show Bridgerton than the books mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so in addition to these random new characters and side plots some of which are cute and fun others yikes but um <laughs> The, in peak Shondaland fashion, uh, what the show does is it uses Shonda's kind of colorblind casting ethos mm -hmm. and it moves people of color into not only key parts of the narrative, but um, key positions within this aristocratic British society. Mm -hmm. So you say colorblind casting and I like explain this a little bit more because I think there's different ways that colorblind casting can work. And yeah. I think you broke it down for me in a really, really good way once. Um, Cinderella, Brandy? Yes. So you might recall the best Cinderella adaptation, okay, or maybe Time with Ever After. I feel mm -hmm. like you're about to come for me. But um, no, no, no. It's that's fair. It's <laughs> The 90s, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston, uh, mm -hmm. famous, famous film. Uh, so that film's kind of colorblind casting has like Whoopi Goldberg, who's black, if you didn't know that already, and Victor Garber. What? <laughs> Whoopi and Victor have Paolo Montalban as their son. So they have a Filipino child. And this all goes kind of gloriously unremarked upon. And so in a similar vein, still star-crossed, also has these kinds of familial formations that cross uh, racialized categories. Mm -hmm. And so none of that is like ever mentioned, people don't discuss it, you know, it's just like, we've cast these people, this is the story and everybody's rolling with it. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like the casting that you would get in like a high school theater department where it's just like, we're just taken from yep. everybody, yeah. Um, but Bridgerton is doing something different and most of Shonda's shows also do something different. I also just want to say that this is like a Shondaland show. Um, mm -hmm. Shonda Rhimes is obviously an executive producer, but I just, Chris Van Dusen, I hope I'm saying his name right, is the showrunner and he's like a former Scandal producer. So he's like, okay. he knows the formula. He knows mm -hmm. how it goes. But mm -hmm. so basically um, this show is colorblind casting, but for example, the Bridgerton family that the narrative kind of revolves around, mm -hmm. they're all white. And so what that means then is that the diversity has to come kind of from outside of the family. Mm -hmm. and so that means it looks like what they're doing because they've, you know, they just dropped the photos for season two, which premieres in March. And wow. so, you know, Simon, who's so the <laughs> in the first book is black. Um, and there's no kind of, um, geographical specificity um to mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. and then the second uh season which is uh the second book which is one of the one of the best ones um so the second is this book, the heist one no no that's seven <laughs> Darn. Uh, back in in 2030 for the heist one <laughs> <laughs> it's funny i mean i hope they do all eight books but like it spans so many years that so you know the like little children Mm -hmm. In the family, they are books seven and eight, so you got to wait for them to be grown. <laughs> That's a ways oh, off. Um, <laughs> in the second book, uh, the Sheffields, who are the family um, that kind of is introduced in book two, uh, and Kate Sheffield is the like woman protagonist. They have changed the Sheffields to the Sharmas, and so that family is South Asian. And mm -hmm. so, to me, it looks like we're just moving around the empire, but we'll see 
<laughs> what first. a very um, specific way of handling this show. <laughs> so we'll see who gets cast as Sophie in the third one. But I'm like, what is happening? And so there is a kind of like, uh, it's the love interests, it seems to me, are going to be the people of color because they made the Bridgerton family white. And mm -hmm. so, and this is also not a show in which race is unremarked upon. Mm -hmm. Some people mm -hmm. might say, me, that they maybe should have said nothing, but that's not, <laughs> that's not what they did. Um, but yeah, so Shonda, of course, is like known for shows with uh, colorblind casting. And then, you know, there's a million interviews she's kind of done because people are always wanting to ask her about this. And mm -hmm. she's always like, I, you know, I want to make worlds that look like the world that I live in is always kind of the like, kind mm -hmm. of party line on that. Mm -hmm. And the the characters in some of her shows are more tethered to like community or more racially specific kind of than others mm -hmm. um so there has been variation even in the same show kind of across that yeah so i mean this is a an important thing to note that i wasn't even expecting to talk about because you mentioned that like there is no geographical specificity to simon's blackness uh but there are reasons for Black people to be in Britain at this time. Um, so can you just like really quick, I know that uh, this is like maybe a little bit of much with the background, but I think it's helpful. Like what did Regency era England look like? Like there were clearly, my, my association with it is so brainwashed, honestly, that mm -hmm. I'm just like, yeah, so England is white. And then all of the racial like diversity that would ever interact with it is all just sort of in their like colonies. So I think about the Caribbean and how horrible the British were in the Caribbean or like the Scottish mm -hmm. were in the Caribbean. Uh, and then that's like, but like black people stay there and white people stay in their northern islands like but I don't think that's actually how it works yeah so I'm glad you brought that up um so frequently and I think this is also part of the way that the UK narrativizes itself is mm -hmm. that there's this idea that like any form of racial diversity comes post World War II really yeah like um, with the Windrush migration and yeah um, and so like England was white and then, you know, all of these people from the kind of former colonies like came on a boat, including Stuart Hall. Anyway, um, and, then now and my grandpa. Like, <laughs> hey. Now England is like different now. But in reality, I mean, when you think about the length of time that mm -hmm. kind of colonial conquest and imperialism happens in Western Europe, um, mm -hmm. there, there was actually my, there was migration that whole time from um, the colonies to the metropole back to England. Mm -hmm. um, some of that was kind of like voluntary migration. Some of that is um, English uh, like plantation owners, like forcibly taking people from Barbados, from India, you know, and like bringing mm -hmm. them back um, to England. And so there was kind of transference and like mobility of people during that time. But I also really want to note that even before that, um, I mean, obviously, you know, people moved around the world. Mm -hmm. It's just when you get to colonialism, the number, the scale is just so much grander mm -hmm. um, with like kind of migration forced or kind of voluntary. Right. Yeah. So now that we've set the stage of like Shonda, Shonda Land shows and Chris Van something. Wow. Yep. <laughs> this is my professional uh, podcast hosting capacity. I do know this man's name. Um, we've set the table for their like approach to colorblind casting and for what England looked like at the time and how race sort of functioned there. It is Valentine's Day. Let's get to the fucking. Um, how does this show up in Bridgerton, a show whose first season, from what I can tell, um, rotates very specifically around where Simon ejaculates? Like, that's really what we're working with. Um, 
And also quick content warning, this show, though it doesn't present this scene as uh, assault or rape, there is a uh, also spoiler warning, pretty key moment where uh, the main character, Daphne Bridgerton, uh, forces Simon, who has made a vow to not father children, to uh, ejaculate inside of her. This is the show. And that's assault. And so if you don't really want to engage in this conversation, totally understand. And um, but beyond that, as the show would really like you to to just like gloss right over it to the more sexy montage with the Taylor Swift played on strings, there's a lot of other sex happening too. Yes. Um, so to okay, sorry to back up from Bridgerton is about come. Um, <laughs> my old episode maybe maybe anyway <laughs> so yes so um Qu Quinn's original novel which is published in 2000 as Kim is saying has this scene where like so a key through line in the original novel that they actually build out much more in the show is that they're trying to like think about how women's lack of any kind of real knowledge about sex or like you know, basic anatomy um, is a part of how they're kind of like oppressed in society and that becomes like really big in the show and so what the show mm -hmm. does is cre creates a kind of false equivalence between Simon manipulating Daphne's ignorance um, about sex so he convinces her basically that he can't have children Mm -hmm. Not that he doesn't want to. And so mm -hmm. she kind of doesn't understand that he's pulling out. And so once she figures out what's going on, then when he's intoxicated, she forces him to like come inside her. And mm -hmm. so this was obviously like, when I read this, I was like, why the fuck would she write that? And so then, you know, when they adapted the show, they had made so many kind of changes that I kind of was like, there's no way that they would keep this. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was incorrect. But mm -hmm. so since we're talking about colorblind casting, when the, so the characters, the black characters are kind of mostly untethered from any kind of like historical kind of racial politics or any, this is not like a historical materialist kind of show, mm -hmm. um, but what the some of the unintended consequences I think of the colorblind casting um is that so now the assault fits into an entirely different history of white women's like assault of like colonized black men and enslaved black men that looks completely different from what is set up kind of in the book and so it actually like um that the severity of what happens now happens at multiple axes and has a mm -hmm. whole different set of um, like a whole different set of things attached to it. Mm -hmm. And the show, oh, go ahead, Laura. Well, I was all, I mean, we're gonna have to cut this shit out anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, I was also gonna say the, um, there's also kind of the added element of the fact that the reason Simon doesn't want to have children is out of uh, like vengeance against his abusive father, who in this adaptation is also like one of the only like very dark skinned black people on the show. So there's this kind of like, like white woman kind of like forcibly like forcing herself on him. And also the fact that it's kind of against this dark-skinned black abusive father kind mm -hmm. of backstory mm -hmm. so yeah so a lot of the criticism that Bridgerton has received since its release has been about colorism and the kind of casting politics so while on the one hand you get a wealth of people kind of celebrating this as some kind of really big kind of positive step forward for like representation on screen mm -hmm. if you look a little bit further kind of into the show um you kind of see these color politics like play out in ways that are like hyper problematic. So mm -hmm. just in case someone hasn't seen the show or doesn't know what Reggae Jean Page who plays Simon looks like. So this is a British Zimbabwean um, actor uh, who has light skin, who's mixed race. 
Um, in the show, his character isn't mixed race. He has two black parents and you see them only in flashbacks. So his parents are dead by the time the kind of novel and the show starts. Mm-hmm. And so in flashback, you see his like light-skinned mother who, if I'm not mistaken, dies during childbirth. Um, yeah. So Simon's father is played by a dark-skinned actor. Unfortunately, I don't know these people's names, but um, his father is very kind of manipulative and emotionally and psychologically abusive and so the father is obsessed with the idea of kind of like lineage and Mm -hmm. so he's so awful to his wife because it's really hard for her to conceive and so when she finally does have a child and it's a son because like he has to you know pass the dukedom on Mm -hmm. um he is like hyper obsessed with Simon being perfect and so when Simon's a little kid you also see this in flashback and this happens in the books too Simon has a stutter Mm-hmm. And so the father rejects kind of Simon as his son. And there's a lot of kind of like ableist language and all this kind of other stuff um, in the books and in the show. And so it's obviously like kind of awful and read as abuse like in the books. But when you map the casting onto this kind of narrative, um, it becomes, it, it's like intensifies because they've decided to cast like a dark-skinned person one of the only dark-skinned people in the show kind of at all um almost all of the black people are light-skinned in this show um as basically like evil incarnate you know what I mean yeah yeah and the show also seems to build this out beyond just what we would transfer onto the show with our like current understanding of real world racial politics because they intentionally speak to an idea of racial disparity within the world of the show so there's a few moments where they uh speaking of like the importance of lineage talk about like love the love between the white king of England and the white queen of England is like what made it possible for black people to sort of like enter the aristocracy in the way that is shown on the show or at least that's what how they imply things went down um but they do so also so they they bring in an element of racial politics and an element of like acknowledging the presence of white supremacy without at any point addressing like wow these are some really nice cakes wonder where they got the sugar yeah exactly really good question where is simon's father from where is simon's like lineage from and so that like intensifies the racial politics because it's like wait so you know what's happening but do you know what's happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is, uh, apologies for the mix of metaphor, but um, I think the show, maybe the writers felt like they had to like address the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, but, but they end up opening too many cans of worms. Like <laughs> then it actually, <laughs> then I have a million questions. So uh, right. the second question that you're talking about uh, is when Lady Danbury, uh, who's a great character, like played by a black actress kind of in this show, is talking to Simon. And in many ways, Lady Danbury operates as Simon's kind of surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. So Simon's mom, Lady Danbury in the show are like best friends. Um, so they're having a conversation and she kind of says like that them being in this position is a fairly new development, which is mm-hmm. interesting if you consider that the whole thing with the aristocracy is that it's like a generational kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> set of circumstances. But um, she explicitly says that the current, like the ones in power right now that are still alive, the current white king and black queen, it's that their love story essentially kind of like fixed racism in this society. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Which is like, obviously like bonkers on its own. But then it, it, you know, just opens several questions. So the first of which is like, okay, but if those people are still alive, they can't have, how, they can't have been married for more than 30 years. Simon's 30. So it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of, you were, you mentioned earlier that you thought that it like would have been better if they just hadn't mentioned it because mm-hmm. it kind of pushes the suspension of disbelief, like opens up all these questions. Mm-hmm. That suggests that like there's the option of like you know like white dad black mom Filipino son or kind of and just not acknowledging it and then there's 
like having if like Bridgerton had been like a serious study of like an alternative history of like the empire and colonialism they had really like seriously addressed it um and like you have those two options but then Bridgerton is just kind of like this like awkward half-assed in-between space like do you have to choose like one of two or two extremes or is there like yeah I mean I I wouldn't even say there's only two options mm-hmm. um because I no one was if you wanted to do a revisionist history of like not a revision excuse me an accurate history of um like England and the colonies set kind of in the romance genre I mean, mm-hmm. you could do that, but you would never adapt Julia Quinn's books if that's what you were like. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think, I mean, there are a few different ways to do, and I know I haven't watched this, but I know a lot of people talk about the PBS series that's an Austin adaptation, the Sanditon show. Um, mm-hmm. There's Mansfield Park. Like there are a few ways, um, but Bridgerton, tries to I think maybe balance kind of too many things Mm. and I I'm not surprised at the way that they did it because I mean part of the romance genre's function is about using romantic love to suture kind of the realities of like social stratification Mm -hmm. so like uh romance novel kind of theorists like Jayashree Kamblay talks about this in terms of class so a lot of romance novels kind of have dating back to like the first Pamela from like 1740 something are about I was hoping you were gonna mention Pamela sorry keep going are about like rich hero poor heroine Mm. and Uh the kind of like really steep kind of class um divides in British society get resolved through that particular kind of pairing. Um, and you can trace kind of differences in formations of kind of capitalism in the genre in some ways. So kind of post-World War II, romance novel heroes become like all powerful capitalists and, and they're not like doctors anymore. They're right. like billionaires. Uh-huh. Um, And then after kind of the global financial crisis, this like really kind of skyrockets. Um, But so Bridgerton, instead of kind of using romantic love to kind of resolve class tensions, it does it to racial tensions. Um, But because of like how racial capitalism gets kind of formed in Britain at the kind of like time, it just like, it just can't make sense, especially mm-hmm. when you consider where are these people getting their money? Right. Like, yeah. that's the whole <laughs> like, okay, but if there's no racism anymore, how are they rich? Like I just, <laughs> I just couldn't get there. Yeah, I think one part of what really doesn't work, Laura, uh, based on what your comment of them like starting, like they could have done this really intense revisionist history or like, rewritten how the empire functioned or they could have just not mentioned it and done like a Whoopi and Victor and their Filipino son (laughs) situation um like I don't even know if they so much like pick a spot in the middle but they just sort of do both in a Mm -hmm. similar way that they sort of do both with this like this incredibly sexy show that is like takes a lot of joy in the sex scenes and like there's there's they're outside they're well lit it's not Mm -hmm. the sort of like dark brooding sex that is mostly happening and then also juxtaposes that with like and a rape right in the middle (laughs) and and you just sort of have to like deal with both of those and you're like oh Mm -hmm. god like this is so fluffy and pastel and look at all the cakes and the macarons and and oh god and me (laughs) Like that short circuiting is, I mean, it's interesting like to think about Pamela as I think this is like long predates this kind of Regency era that we're so into now in the romance genre. It's like in the early 1700s, but it is very, very rapey. Like it's like, it's right. Cause like, doesn't he kidnap her? And he's like, I want to marry you. And she's like, no, I'm too good. And then at some point she changes him and he's, yep. And then like he turns good and it's like oh yay now they can be together and then when you like so already it's like oh my god but then when you add on top like 
like as you said like the racial mapping Mm -hmm. on top of that like adds kind of a whole nother level of just like what are we do what is this what are we doing here yeah Yeah, the the notion of fantasy and fulfilling fantasy we've had this conversation where like the idea of sort of being like taken you know like I'm gonna marry you no I can't like there's something hot about that on some level for some people I might be one of them but there's like fantasy versus or the depiction of fantasy as opposed to like okay so this is how this is reinforcing our current ideas of race which are pretty fucking bad or like this is reinforcing our current ideas of race or or gender that are pretty fucking bad and it's like okay how do you how do you consume a genre that inherently contains both where it's both reflecting and reinforcing ideology and also giving you an outlet for a fantasy that like no I don't actually want to be kidnapped and forced into marriage by a like even a sexy older dude still no Mm. uh but gosh it's fun to think about Mm. yeah absolutely and one of the things that I've learned from like kind of reading uh romance kind of scholarship so this book that I had just mentioned it's called Making Meaning in Popular Romance Fiction it's by Jayashree Kamble um who talks about kind of the capitalist hero of the romance novels uh but she says that like we frequently like to think about genre romance as just pure like this is pure ideology like fully like locking into kind of patriarchy, but she says that like what genre fiction does is that while it speaks to its time and in some ways kind of is a reflection of hegemony, it also will always have, not always, but also within it, when you think about like um, the fiction as a strip of time or like all of the books published maybe in like a 10 year period or something, like the way it speaks to the current conjuncture is that it will also have resistance to hegemony kind of embedded within mm-hmm. the text. So it's, there's a constant kind of, even though the books are resolved happily at the end, kind of always, it's kind of a like genre rule that it's the, it, it's the journey, not to sound like I'm on The Bachelor, but <laughs> it's the kind of journey where the kind of key tensions of our world are kind of worked out and that there's always kind of um, potentially parts of the books that kind of advance uh, different types of uh, isms, structures, like what have you, but there's also always embedded in them these kinds of uh, modes of resistance. Um, now I sound like I'm talking about television as a cultural form, but you know what I'm trying oh, That's to exactly say. what I was thinking yeah, the whole yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Jackie, Thank you so much for sharing this and like for, I don't know, you've changed how I think about Bridgerton as a show uh, and not just because like it's all about come, like there's, there's more going on there, <laughs> but you've also changed how I think of, about the genre. So thanks for joining us this week. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And I realized just on a final note, one thing I maybe should have said, I like the show. I like <laughs> yeah no I it's it's fun yeah and it's I mean a lot of like at the academic journey I'm sure you could attest to this as somebody who's gone farther in it than we have is like realizing that a thing you like has a lot of issues and then figuring out how to still like it Mm -hmm. in a more critical way yeah what's your favorite part I don't know the show just to end it Uh, (laughs) what is my favorite part of the show um actually even though I was like throwing a little shade on some of the stuff that they added, one of the things that I liked that they decided to do with the first season is texture and color in some of the other siblings. Um, Mm. Those ended up becoming parts that I thought were really fun. Um, Benedict, I love, I like Benedict, but like book three is good, but it's just a retelling of Cinderella. So it's like, very you know you know the narrative beats but um Benedict being like the there's some queer beating in the show but then like him having this like artist life wait is he not gay oh in the book's not at all what (laughs) 
Because uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. Like, come through with this, like, by Benedict story. I was, like, obsessed with that. That was actually my favorite part of the show. <laughs> well, dope. I can't wait. Like, honestly, Shonda slash Chris Van, etc. <laughs> by Benedict. <laughs> season three. Give the people what they want. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsie, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, Julia Rose Camus, and Julia Evans. This episode was edited by Anne Zhang. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Chiel, and our logo was created by Julia. 